Hey everyone, this is Henry. It's been a while since my last podcast, I think. But yeah, again, I have with me uh, Michael Sakasis, and we're just gonna talk about his last newsletter posts from the last six months and how they relate to Illich and his thinking around silence, attention, and some other topics like hair, of all things. <laughs> we'll be all over the place. We'll see where the conversation goes, yeah. which is very Illichian. Yeah, that's right. Maybe we can start with one of your posts called Impossible Silences. I think there are various things that have led me over the years to think about silence. And in this particular case, I was sort of struck by the fact that essentially silence is a critical part of human communication. It's meaningful. This is, I think, the important word, right? So if, if we're together and, you know, if we imagine something like a sorrowful or tragic situation, I don't necessarily have to speak words to meaningfully communicate mm. uh, my love or my care, right? So two bodies in proximity being silent before one another are still having a kind of meaningful exchange, as it were, between the two of them. And so that's the, the title of that piece you're talking about, I called Impossible Silences, because in a digital media context, that kind of silence is impossible, right? You can't have it. It presupposes the presence of bodies. And so if I'm on Twitter and there's some controversy, some part of the outrage cycle for the day or whatever it is, and I don't say anything about it, that silence isn't meaningful. It doesn't necessarily mm. communicate. Or if it is meaningful, it's always in a sort of dangerous way, right? Why hasn't this person said something about this thing? Because the expectation is that everybody sort of pronounces their opinions on what is happening, stakes out their claim and, you know, puts down their tape, et cetera. Immediately. Um, quickly, right, exactly. Because the cycle is going to be over in 24, 48 <laughs> hours, so you have to get it in, right? And then maybe you feel the need to say, oh, I took a break or I'm going on vacation. It's almost like your excuse in some sense, even though it's just their life. Who knows what it could have been, right? Yeah. It's silence can't just sustain itself. It needs explanatory comments, as it were, right? <laughs> The first time I, th I thought about this sort of thing, I think it was way back in 2013, and there was a school shooting in Connecticut. Mm. And I remember feeling, as I'm reading, I, I opened up Twitter, and this is how I learned of it, or it had just happened. I remember feeling the need to say something. And, and I immediately remember thinking, why? You know, why is it that I feel the need to say something? You know, I have nothing to say to this. You know, it's, it's tragic. You know, it's upsetting, et cetera. But... I just felt that, that that imperative to speak. And I think it was a function of social media because the only way one exists on social media or appears before others is through communication, right? Through posting something, whether it's speech or a, a meme or whatever the case may be. Your, your box shows up on the newsfeed. But it, that'd be yeah. interesting if like non-saying something makes space on the newsfeed. But that's not how it works, right? <laughs> right. No. I mean, I actually thought, what happens if you uh, hit a space bar and... and, and you know, post to Twitter, does that show up? I have no idea. I was tempted to try it. But, you know, and then I got, you know, sort of sardonic about it. And how would anybody know I'm being silent on Twitter? I guess I, you know, I post hashtag silence, you know, just, but you <laughs> defeat the purpose, right? And you're so, you're so self-aware of it. And so then even the silence kind of, you, you know, it's not performative if other people can't note it. Anyway, so it seemed to me like there's just a, a kind of perverse incentive structure in the context of something like, you know, whatever tragedy happens to be front and center at that given moment. And maybe um, that's related to like quitting too. I'm telling everyone on Twitter that I'm quitting Twitter. Maybe it <laughs> yeah. sends around signal. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. 
So in any case, and then I thought about the value of strategic, I'm not sure who coined the term, but the idea of strategic silence. This is prior to 2016 when things began to get really crazy, but there was something that was causing a bit of uh, consternation and, and drawing a lot of attention. And whoever the provocateur was at the point at that moment was, by all respects, a kind of insignificant figure. But he was receiving an immense amount of attention for the actions that you know had on viral on social media. And so, even this is a well-known dynamic now, right? Even if I wanted to criticize these actions, I'm in fact feeding into the growth of his popularity on the terms of the attention economy, right? The only kind of negative attention is no attention. And so if I give Mm -hmm. him negative attention, I'm still spreading his actions and his presence through my network. And so I know this is sort of a dicey way of thinking about this because we, we have so long equated speech with power and we talk about speaking truth to power and that kind of thing. And so it's not that I'm suggesting we must always be silent, but that there are moments where perhaps the better part of wisdom is to not even to challenge something, but to just let that message die in my little part of the network, right? By not commenting on it, it sort of dies with me and doesn't filter through to the other people that might hear it, if if only because I'm, I'm criticizing it. So in any case, all of these different ways in which I think silence is is valuable, can be lost, can be powerful in digital media context. And so this last post is just to focus on, again, the the dynamic of the meaningfulness of silence, how that meaningfulness is lost, because it only functions in a fully embodied context. I mean, I suppose, you know... Even now, right? I was about to say, this is an interesting case, because we're looking at each other. You know, we see one another, at least portions of one another's bodies as we're so I suppose in this context, our bodies aren't quite fully present, but, you know, we could be silent, you know, and that silent would take on some dimension of meaningfulness. I think it would still fall short of, of what the, the fully embodied experience would yield. But nonetheless, right, on social media by and large, it's impossible to be silent in this way, right, to be meaningfully silent. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about this podcast, depending on how you do it, it could be like an interview style. So then mm-hmm. it's like... The silence doesn't feel as, I don't know, natural, where when you're talking with someone, you actually do cut off one another and that's normal. But then for this stuff, it's usually a question, answer, question, answer. It just feels a lot more strict. Yeah. And even on radio, the worst thing that could happen, you know, if you're a DJ is, is for there to be silence, right? You know, and, and so you have this pressure to sort of fill the empty space in a podcast scenario you have a little bit of that i think podcasts can be more informal and maybe there's a little more space for that but yeah part of what i got me thinking about silence again when i wrote that a few months back was reading an essay by illich and it's one of his oldest essays and it's Mm. from when he was teaching spanish to english speakers in the context of his ministry in the catholic church so that they would be better prepared uh, to minister to the immigrant population and so he's essentially teaching language and he would give these meditations almost as it were, these brief reflections before the class. And so this is one of them. And in it, he talks about essentially the function of silence and in language. He has some very eloquent lines there where where he talks about how somebody's silences can be more meaningful than their words. And that part of really learning a language is to be able to read those silences, to be able to interpret those silences as they function in the native tongue that you're trying to learn. And he even 
sort of draws ultimately a kind of religious or mystical significance in terms of the silence of the soul before God, the receptivity, right? The, the being prepared to hear. And it has, you know, very, again, these sort of multiple dimensions, both with regards to the other, right? The other human being. Am I prepared to simply hear, to simply listen, to not be so interested in saying, you know, what I have to say, but I'm being patient enough to learn and to listen. And that requires silence. And then it had that also, that, that kind of spiritual dimension for him as well. But that struck me as a you know, rather profound understanding of what silence can be, of the role of silence. And if we think about the, we commented on it already, you know, the temporal, the pace of social media, there is very little time to reflect and to listen. And even the, the, that mode of listening silently doesn't really show up in a social way. I mean, I might do it, you know, mm. I mentioned, you know, the, the practice of lurking, which in a sense is sort of hearing or listening or reading without speaking. So it's not impossible to, to do that, to listen carefully or read carefully on social media without commenting, but it loses its sort of social dynamic. Others don't know you're doing that, right? That you're taking that kind of care. And, and then beside that, there is the pressure to speak quickly, to speak immediately, right? To get the, the take in before that particular topic moves on. I think it also relates to, you use this analogy a lot of life as a gift versus mm-hmm. control. So maybe being able to be silent is like kind of seeing the person or whatever they have to say, I guess, yes. or themselves as a gift, right? Right, exactly. It's a mode of attending to the other that is more interested in what the other may give to you than in what you may give to them, right? I think often we tend to think about, and again, I I don't want, this is just sort of part of the human condition, I suppose, you know, I won't connect it very directly to social media, but it's just, you know, we want to be heard. We want to say what we have to say. And it, it takes a certain degree of virtue to be able to put that aside, to be less concerned with winning an argument or making my point and to just, to listen with humility, with care. And I think that that's a good connection. It is about recognizing the other as a gift before you and not just one more thing to manipulate, one more aspect of your experience to control and to just bend to your own wishes or or desires. And seeing the other person not as a resource, maybe that relates to the end of that essay about like, the commons and how silence gets turned into a resource and that it needs to be managed and policed and it destroys the the commons. And maybe you could share the story about the loudspeaker. Yeah. So he tells the story about how when he was an infant, obviously it must have been related to him at some point, but when he was an infant, uh, he was brought to his grandfather's estate on an island off the coast of Dalmatia, which is a province within Croatia. And the island and his father's estate, this is what had been in the 1920s, in the mid-20s. And so in, in large measure, in you know, the modern society as we know it had not quite yet come to this island, right? He, I think it's in this context or maybe elsewhere where he says many things were still being done on, on his grandfather's estate as they had been done for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. even to the, to the point of having a wine press that had been in operation since the 1400s or something of that sort. So, so it's a you know, very different world and social reality there at that point. Now, but on that ferry that's bringing little baby Yvonne to the island, 
was the first loudspeaker that was being brought to that island. You know, he, he had a lifelong aversion to microphones. If, if he could help, he would not use a microphone. And I think part of the, the reason for that is that it, it, gave, it granted a, a kind of power that destroyed the idea of silence as a commons. And I think, you know, it, it, I've read that essay a number of times mm-hmm. and, and trying to articulate what exactly does he mean by this. And I think part of what he means is that silence as a commons is a space where everyone who enters into that space, into that acoustic space, if you like, is able to speak into it with just as much of a chance of being heard as the next person, right? So you introduce the microphone, say, and then you've augmented one voice over all the others. And so that creates a very different dynamic in his view, right? It changes the sort of acoustic power relations of the situation. And it was just one of the many examples, I think, in Illich's view, where there was something that was commonly held in this case, a kind of space that was sort of commonly held, which we could enter into just by virtue of being a fellow human being, equally equipped with natural capacities to speak into this space and be heard. But then a new device or technique or technology is introduced in such a way that it it upsets those power relations. Now, I think, of course, you know, I feel immediately the need to say, Illich understood there were other power relations in, in, in play, right? You know, there are other ways of silencing people. And, and we don't need to be naive about those to still recognize, I think, the value of what, of what Illich is saying. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could even argue that it could be democratic. You could pass the microphone to someone else or other people could buy their own microphones. Maybe people might say that it's helpful. Same with social media. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, I think when you introduce ways of communicating that augment somebody's voice, I think what Illich would say is that you generate a kind of arms race, just mm-hmm. an, an escalatory process, right? So now I need to figure out a way to be heard over the person who is now thus equipped. And so the end result is a situation, I suppose, where you know everybody has gained a power to speak, but in such a way that nobody can be heard. And so it's become, in his classic way of, of analyzing these things, it becomes counterproductive. You cross mm-hmm. a threshold where the advances, so to speak, have flipped in such a way that it, it makes it now very difficult. So even as I think about social media, right, all, any of us, all of us, with whatever number of followers we have or whatever yep. the case may be, we have platforms, literally, where we can speak. And yet I think most of us would say that there's very little um, to be gained from it in, in some respects. It's not a place where we feel like we can have productive conversations. The dynamics become uh, destructive and polarizing. It's a, a case where many people are able to speak, but very few people can be heard or know how to hear any longer, right? Yeah. You were mentioning a while back that like science is a, at least within the presence of people, is a way of attending to people. That was related to like a different newsletter you wrote on like attention not being a resource. So attention, we think uh, attention is the mental act of like focusing on something. But then you're like, oh, what about all these other bodily ways of attending? And I guess silence is one of those. Yeah, or, or silence is an observable sort of, I'm not sure what the right word would be, right? But silence is what happens when you're attending acoustically, right? In a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've written about attention on and off as so many others have over the past 10 years. And in this particular case, 
it, it did seem to me that when we think about attention, we, we tend to think of it without regard to what the body is doing. This is also kind of inspired by Illich. So Illich in his, his later phase of his career, of his writing, was very interested in the body, very interested in the senses, in, in what sight can be. He writes a sort of cultural history of, of how we think of what we're doing when we see. And it's an actually very interesting <laughs> history. It brings to our attention, no pun intended, it was very seemingly odd ways of understanding sight as something that actually emanates from the eye and makes mm-hmm. contact with the world beyond us, which would have been kind of Greco-Roman and into the medieval period, the, the understanding of what eyesight is before modern day optics. In any case, so a lot of what I just call attention discourse, you know, thinking back to you know, all of the different people who have written about distraction and attention in online digital contexts, that discourse sometimes takes the body out of the picture. And, and I mean, I, I can understand why, you know, if I think about paying attention to something, I almost think of, in fact, closing my eyes and just sort of gritting myself and thinking really hard about something, right? It's just a sort of intense mental act, right? It almost becomes synonymous with, with thinking itself. And it seemed to me that it'd be worth exploring the, the idea of attention with, with a more direct connection to to the senses so that what I need to do to attend to the world is not just think harder, but to learn how to see, which seems like a weird thing to say, right? Because if you're you know, ably sighted, you, you just think, well, of course you just see, right? There's no skill involved in that. You just look and there it is. There's the world. Of course you're seeing. But I think artists especially, but others too, We'll notice that, will remind us that just to look is not to see. This is the way I sometimes put it, right? We can look without seeing. And I think all of us have had an experience like this where I have to actually patiently attend to something in order to see the fullness of what is before me. One example that I've used is an art historian at Harvard or Yale, and they write about the typical interpretive essay that they have their students write where they go to the museum, you know, look at this painting, write about it. But their requirement was that the students sit before the painting for a solid three hours <laughs> before they write anything, right? Which seems, I mean, I don't know how that strikes you. I think it strikes a lot of people as kind of excessive. And the point of this, she writes about this exercise in part because she, she says she's realized that we need to learn how to attend to things as well as, you know, so every discipline has a way of teaching their students how to attend to the world. This is what she's trying to do. And what she relates, of course, is, is that, you know, students would report back and say, yeah, that I sat there for, you know, 10 minutes. I began to see this. Mm. It wasn't until I hit the hour mark that I noticed this about the painting. And she writes about this given her own experience. And she uses a painting, an 18th century American painting to illustrate this. But it's this idea that you, we have to actually be very deliberate and train our eyes to see in some cases. And, and that various human activities require us to learn to see the world. The scientist, the painter, the baseball player, right? I can think of just examples where vision needs to be trained in an in a active way in order to see the world. And so that connects attention very directly to sight in this case, right? And then to kind of weave it with what we've been talking about earlier, you can say the same thing for attending 
to sounds, right? You know, we have sounds mm. all around us all the time. You know, it was interesting at the early phase of the pandemic last year, reading a lot about people sort of saying, oh, I'm, I'm hearing the birds for the first time, or I've never <laughs> noticed all this noise, right? And I suppose part of that, you know, if you live, especially if you live in an urban setting, had to do with the fact that there were fewer cars on the road and maybe less ambient noise. Mm. But I wonder how much of it just simply had to do with the, the fact that we were paying attention in a different way, yeah. right? And all of our senses can be trained, I think, in this way. This is what I was trying to, to get in that piece, right? That attention is not just a mental activity. It, it can be a fully embodied activity. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, totally. I think we talked about this last time, like the bike analogy. When you learn how to ride a bike, the bike paths like kind of almost show up or they light up. Yeah. Like you saw them before. And this actually happened for me where I finally started using this thing called City Bike in New York City. And then there's a bunch of stations all around the city. So you don't have to walk or take the subway. Mm. And because I didn't use it before, I would have ignored it. Maybe I thought it was annoying or other people did it. I was like, ah, but I'm scared. You know, know, all these different ways of thinking about that thing. But then once I finally did it, I was like, wow, every time I notice one, I was like, oh, maybe I should bike over here. It really changes your view of the city, but also like your life, like what you decide to do. Maybe you spontaneously go somewhere else just because you can. So I think that really opens up things because you decided to look at it differently. Right, right. A guy named Rob Walker, I think Rob Walker's his name, has an interesting newsletter called The Art of Noticing. And <laughs> every newsletter is a exercises you might do, not physical, in the sense of mm. you know, activities you might undertake, you know, or prompts to get you to see the world differently or think about the world differently or to become attentive to the world in different ways. And Yeah, I think that'd be a good thing, you know, for us to do, certainly to counteract the degree to which our attention does kind of get siphoned into our devices, right? So, you know, with with smartphone in hand, I'm much more um, tempted to become inattentive to my surroundings, Uh, right? I think Um, of walking on the street with your phone out, not looking at the road or anything, yeah, and then yeah. also, this is related to sound, noise-canceling headphones. I use those all the time now. Yeah. It's like, not just a safety concern, but it is interesting that you might not hear what's going on or just notice like things are going on. Uh, that's more of a recent thing, I feel like, too. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I really like Fahrenheit uh, 451 by Ray Bradbury. And I think the, the book is often just lumped into this sort of anti-censorship thing. I think there's a lot more going on there that's really interesting. And, and there's this theme of people encasing themselves mm. in such a way that they have just lost touch with reality, if you like, or the world. And my understanding is this is before headphones were a thing, mm-hmm. Bradbury envisioned what he called in that story seashells, he calls them, right? And so they're very familiar to us, you know, 70 years later as earbuds that people would put in their ears, but they would, would sort of block out the world, right? And so, and it's also a world in which people move very, very fast. And so speed becomes an impediment to noticing the world. It's the difference between walking and and driving. Yeah, that relates a lot to like efficiency and attentiveness in this sense is around being inefficient. Because I don't want to get from A to B and I'm trying to be aware of my surroundings, I will notice things. It's because the A to B mindset, right? I'm going here to there. You're of course, you're not going to notice anything. So I'm going to buy things or use things to make me not have to see or listen to anything around me, right? 
Right, right. It's interesting because you're saying that it occurs to me that it, it works if all we ever want to do is the goal, our self-given goal, right? So this thing I want to accomplish, anything that prevents me from doing that or makes it harder or more challenging is just an inefficiency that I can eradicate. And if I get rid of it, I can accomplish my goal. But then I guess the other way of thinking about it, and this goes back to the idea of, of receiving life as a gift, is that there's an openness. I don't know what I may find, right? Nice. Exactly. So often in terms of surprise, right? Do I live in such a way that I am prepared to be surprised by my circumstances, by the world, by people? But if I only ever think about my self-given goals, right, the goals I give myself to accomplish, you're inhabiting the world in such a way that you're not able to see what may be there, the gifts that might be there right in your path. That's also the planned life, the world of control that you predict, right? Instead of knowing that there's a risk because you don't know, it could lead to failure, but it could also lead to something yeah. like good, amazing. Right. I think a profound theme in Elitch's work, right? The opposition of the idea of, of planning at the end of de-schooling in that essay, Epimethean Man, right? It's hope versus expectation. You know, expectation in this regards is what we we can expect because we've planned for it and we've predicted and we've directed our technology towards the controlling of things to make this thing happen as opposed to an openness to what may happen. Yeah, it, it's a really, I mean, in many ways, I think this is sort of at the heart of the question of technology as a kind of culture, as a mindset, as not just this tool or that tool, but a, a way of being in the world. Right. And I guess that ties into his convivial tools. Yeah. And there are tools that, you know, very intentionally lock us in. Their point is to lock us in into, into their own dynamics. And it's funny because in software, we have like vendor lock-in, right? You make it really convenient. I mean, I guess that's why everything is free so that you use it and then you depend on it. Right. And we all know this, but I guess that's the whole radical monopoly, right? The whole idea of it is dependence, like cars. Yeah. That you can only imagine doing this thing through this service or through this product. And so you mentioned cars, right? I think in Illich's view, would, you know, true auto mobility is you and your own two feet taking you where you want to go. You don't depend on anybody or anything or any service or the industry in order to do that. Granted, you, you know, necessarily can't walk from, you know, Florida to London, but the idea that transportation gets reduced to having a car in the American context, certainly, right? My, my freedom of mobility is dependent upon having a car. And of course, we've built cities in such a way that that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Or that education learning is reduced to what the school can offer me. And so there are all these ways in which, right, the idea of the radical monopoly is you, you only now imagine doing this very human thing through the channel that this product or service or institution or technology has framed that are made possible. The key is like the imagine in a way, right? It's not just that that's the norm or that's what people do, but that you can't even, like people right. culturally can't conceive of anything else other than that. Exactly, right. right. It, it's, you're locked in. I mean, that's when I think the, the power of culture in its deepest sense is when it forecloses alternative ways of being, right? Where you can't even think of 
something being done differently. And so you begin to think of it just as natural. This is natural. This is the way it always is, right? And I think that's when cultural norms are operating most powerfully is when you don't even recognize them as such and you mistake them for nature itself, right? So when tech becomes nature, I guess, then you think that's natural, right? How do we not not communicate other than social media? Right. And I mean, there's so many times where I've had conversations like this. And I understand these things are are complicated because we've now created structures where these dependencies are active. And so, you know, especially if you're not already well positioned, it's very difficult to just say, well, I'm going to, you know, do without or I'm going to opt out. But, you know, I talk to people in various contexts and, and I've usually been associated with relatively small institutions that kind of struggle for funding, you know, don't have a great deal of resources available to them and are often trying to drop people's awareness to what they're doing. And, and of course, the, the default way of thinking about that now is, well, we need a social media presence, right? We need a more active Instagram account. Mm-hmm. We need to purchase, you know, ads on Facebook. And it's difficult to resist that logic. And certainly there are a lot of businesses that may depend on Facebook, et cetera. And I understand that. But that's an example of how we get locked into thinking. Our imagination is, is, is curtailed, right? Our ability to imagine alternatives becomes very hard. Yeah, it's like weird because being aware of it doesn't even help in some sense. I, I think it's similar to this feeling of, you know, like the nine to five, people want to leave the rat race, stuff like that. You can't help yourself or like maybe the whole GameStop thing that happened, like you can't help yourself, but want to participate in that to you know make money or, or NFTs and crypto, like to participate in that either. It seems to me with that kind of thing that there's a sense that you're going to miss out, right? Mm. You have to get in. And if you don't, your chances of benefiting from it right or really you know profiting from it whatever that particular thing happens to be are going to pass and so it's that sense of i mean these are very unhealthy scarcity yeah yes right it's scarcity in a sense right if you don't jump in creates enormous pressures to do just that and then the other really unhealthy dynamic is the arms race dynamic right where if i don't upgrade in this way Mm. my competitors will right and you know it's the logic of Cold War nuclear proliferation, right? If I don't have this many nukes, somebody else is going to have those nukes, right? So you feel as if there is no option but to escalate. And so in both of these cases, it it can be enormously difficult to find another way of being and and to survive, right? Because again, once the world gets structured this way, again, especially for the disadvantaged and for those that are already in, in positions on the low end of the equality spectrum, it becomes extremely difficult to do that, to opt for that other way of life. You require a community, you require something more than just your own decision on a given day that you're going to live differently. Although, you know, by the same token, I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe it's not as hard as we think. And maybe part of the problem is, is that we're locked into a particular way of imagining what a good life looks like. I don't know. Right. And everyone's different. I I think it's more like that makes sense. If you're in that kind of situation, I don't think anyone would expect you to even attempt to do that. But my, like, I don't know if it's concerned, but just interesting to me, it's like people that are in a privileged position or it looks like on the outside, they're not doing it either. Right. Or very few. Right. I mean, I, I don't know how, you know, your own 
experience has been here or, or the people you know or your connections or anecdotally what you've heard. But I mean, it seems to me that there's a lot of interest now in finding a different relationship to work. I hear a lot of talk about the four-day work week. There's talk about the, you know, what is the the source of the dynamics in the workforce right now, right? Is it that there are no jobs? Is it people are just holding out for better pay? Or is it just people who decided? That reminded me, I read something about China, actually. There's like a slang term for it in Chinese, mm. lying down. And it essentially is like they all quit because they just want to metaphorically lay low hmm. and not do anything. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe that's like their vision of exit and voice. Well, by studying or working, we're not going to increase our social standing at all. We're just helping the government. Mm-hmm. So the only way to not help them is to just stop working entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. And, and at the heart of so much of this, you know, deciding what is... What path do I want to follow? What choices do I want to make? What can I live with? What can I not live with? You know, just answering this sort of fundamental question of what do I conceive of as a good life, you know, for myself, for my family, et cetera, is this question of desire, of want, you know, what we want. So the last thing I, I wrote, the last thing I put right. on the newsletter, mm-hmm. also very Lichian in theme, and is, is the idea that, very simply put, maybe we want too much. And, and what we want, I can imagine how that will strike some people listening, but the idea here is chiefly about stuff, right? So it's a very, in some respects, a very kind of cliched critique of materialism, yeah. right? The idea that right. if I just get more stuff, access to more services uh, or more experiences, then I'm going to be happy. And so I sort of just drive myself to work as hard as I can. And I do that chiefly because I think that my satisfaction is always going to be connected to, to having more things, more stuff, bigger house. I kind of darkly joke about how the square footage of homes has nearly tripled in the last 70 years in the United States. And and yet many you know suburbs are, are sprawling with storage unit facilities, right? Because we, we just don't even have in these huge homes enough space to store all the stuff we've accumulated. This is funny because we just moved. So every time you move, you realize you have like <laughs> two times as many things as you thought, right? And maybe as, as you need. And so I think what Illich really came to see, I think this was an evolution in his thinking, is that you can't just critique schools and modern medicine and transportation industry. This is all what he does in the early and mid-70s, because there were some more fundamental realities underpinning these institutions. They were serving, in some respects, what people came to think that they needed and wanted. And so you had to attack the problem, as it were, at that level and and to expose these supposed needs, you know, as manufactured needs, right? And to really learn to ask for ourselves, you know, what in fact do we need? And this is hard, right? It goes back to that thing that we just naturally think this is the way people are, right? So to have the, the discipline, I suppose, to deeply question even the things that we take for granted, right, in terms of what we think we need. He called those uh, certainties. Certainty, right? right, these certainties. And for him, history helped, right? He was a historian at heart. And so going back and just excavating other now very foreign ways of life and human ways of, of being in the world, right, in order to show us, I think, that the particular modern configuration of human well-being isn't the only way 
to be well in the world. And in fact, it might be keeping us from the deepest sources of satisfaction. Right. I th- yeah. Kind of reminds me of Alan Jacobs breaking bread with the dead. Like, I remember he was mentioning that like history, the like, reason why you would read it is so you get to see the present state from a different light. Right. And I guess me personally, encountering one of these things where it's like, oh, the thing that I believe now is a very current idea. Mm-hmm. Then it helps you to think that maybe you could question a lot of yeah. things that seemed important. People are completely different from before. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's sometimes just having this happen in one very specific way is enough to open the floodgates, as it were. Now you're at least cognizant of the possibility that the things that you take for granted need not be so. Yeah. I guess related to that would be like, how, how do we do that? And maybe we could talk about your other posts you called it surviving the show. And then this other fancy word that people might not know of a of perception, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's just a transliteration of, of a Greek word. It's the word behind the word asceticism, uh, which we associate with monks and, you know, severely religious right. people, but it is essentially just disciplining, right? Which if we might, even that word discipline, I think has a kind of a pejorative connotation. Yeah. So training, right? It's just training, a, a form of training. And, and in a sense, this is what people in religious orders do is, is they undergo kind of a species or training and disciplining of their desires, say, for example. But athletes do the same thing, right? Even as we talked about earlier, artists train themselves to see the world in a certain way, right. etc. So yeah, species is just sort of the idea of needing to train your perception, your vision. It's interesting. We have a really good picture of training ourselves physically, mm-hmm. especially at the level of athletes, right? They, they have mm-hmm. coaches, nutrition, all these different things. But it seems that we barely know what to do to train your mental capacity, memory. Mm-hmm. People have done research in it, but like, just think about the average person and professional, right? Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, in that post, I was drawing on a memo that Illich wrote to the president of the school proposing a series of lectures. And so in it, he talks about how, in his view, what has happened in, in Western educational contexts is that the, the training of the mind, reasoning, I guess critical thinking skills, maybe is one way of putting it had been divorced from what he calls eschesis or a, a training of the desires and of the body, right? The, the person had been sort of severed, cut up into these different faculties or capacities. And that around the 12th century, which is you know, very critical for him in many respects in educational context in the university, in the emerging university of the 12th century, the idea of learning gets reduced to just the training of the mind without regard for the heart and the body, or what might be the relationship between those three faculties of the person. So I'm going to take this in a certain way, and you, you know, tell me if it's helpful or not. But I think of our angst about the current information ecosystem, right, and all the talk about misinformation, disinformation the proliferation of conspiracy theories, right? It's just this huge part of the discourse, right? Because people just want, how how do we make people think, right? Or believe the right thing or whatever. So without getting into many of the dynamics involved there, this one sort of fundamental point is that very often people say, well, we just need 
better literacy skills or better media literacy. We need to train people to, to laterally fact check. There are all these methods. But really, uh, before any of that matters at all, somebody has to want to know the truth. And, and somebody has to entertain the possibility that they might be wrong. Somebody has to have the courage to believe that their tribe, their people, their party is in error and to be willing to break with them, right? If that means coming to better understand the truth of the case or the matter. So in other words, all that to say is that there are moral virtues mm. that have to underpin the the deployment of any of these skills, right? All of these skills can, if these intellectual virtues aren't there, will not avail, right? In some respects, they may just reinforce yep. the person in their errors, make them more clever in their... Uh, that makes sense in light of conspiracy theories. That's sort of like believe the science. If only they knew the facts, their mind will be changed. Just arguing with anyone, that might not be the case. And even in a religious context, you're trying to evangelize or convert someone or whatever. But you can't just say some facts, quote unquote, and then that will lead to anything, really. Yeah, there's other dimensions of the human person that go into how we view the world, what we believe, what we trust. So often it's a matter of trust. And so I think Illich's point then in in relation to this is that you, you can't just impart people with a set of intellectual skills. There's more that is needed. There's more that is needed at the level of human desire, of virtue, and in some respects, this also all you know in, involves the body in the sense that there are habits that we cultivate, practices that we cultivate as well. And so Illich wanted to kind of reconnect all of these things, bring them together as a whole package, which would you know I think bring us you know a lot closer to a, not an answer to our present crisis, but certainly would avail us more than simply saying, well. Twitter just needs to attach some warning labels to some, some tweets or just ban some people or whatever. All of those really have just the effect of escalating the problem in the sense that then people think, well, now I'm being targeted and this is what happens when you know, big media takes So You don't really improve the health of the public sphere because the change isn't a technocratic fix. It isn't just something that you can you know, code into a program, I, I would say. That, that rings true as a programmer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is not to say, again, that these other, so they're not even solutions, right? but these other strategies have no place, but they're going to be incomplete and inadequate. I feel like that's so hard to like express. I mean, that's the whole point, like exposing or bringing an imagination that there are other approaches. Maybe the only approach we have is this ban people, these kind of black and white sort of things, or very like technique oriented things. Right, right. And and I mean, that that's just sort of the nature of modernity in a sense, right? That if there is a problem, it's susceptible to, to technique. We just need the right method, the right tool, the right sort of institutional structures, and then this problem will be solved. It will go away. Right. And I think the human person and thus human society is simply just more complicated than that, more complex than that. I don't know how to tie this to the essay other than I guess cities are complicated, (laughs) but I came across this 
essay by Illich called Hair in the History of the City. And we haven't talked about it yet, so I'm just curious yeah. what stood out to you. Right. And, and I, I had, as I mentioned to you, I'll say it now, I, I had not read that before. So that was a new piece to me and, and, and very Illichian in a lot of respects in, in the odd things that it ties together to make this point in, in his talking about the skin mm-hmm. as this, uh, you know, in, in pre-20th century settings. I mean, he, he, he connects it to DDT, right, and the purpose yeah. of DDT, which kind of makes bugs go away. But before that, you know, it was very common for people to have kind of festering sores resulting from bites and itches. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really awkward sort of discussion. Yeah. In, but this way of thinking of tying the commons to the hair on one's skin, right? So I think when I first saw the title, I was thinking initially of just a hair on your head, right? I think he uses the word fuzzy at one point. It's this yes. fuzzy interface between the self and the world. Yeah. And, and I guess his point is that we think of it as a very, it's a very fine line. So it's impenetrable, right? And, and it, so there's me on the inside and the world on the outside. And I think Illich's point is that traditionally that line would have been much more porous, would have been understood in a much more porous way, mm-hmm. both literally in the sense, right, that these you know, bugs would have been a, a constant feature of my going about the day, you know. You just had to deal with it. You had to deal with it, yes. Now, if like there's a mosquito, you get really annoyed, you get bug spray, all this stuff, but then... They didn't even bother to ask a doctor to fix something because they didn't think it was possible. They lived with it, right? Yeah. In a lot of cases, it wasn't. There was very little that could be done, right? And I think this is the part that probably just infuriates some people that read Illich, you know, because I think the immediate thing is, what, what are you saying? <laughs> Should we not yeah, treat our festering sores, right? You know, but I think the, the point that he's making here is that, as I read him, and you can correct me because you, you know, yeah. you've read this before, but the point is this distinction between the self and the other. In other words, the privatized individual and then the human society being divided between the private and the public with no room for the commons. Sometimes I think when the word commons is used, I think the temptation is to lump it into the public, right? When we think of like public spaces or public parks, right? But I think Illich thinks these are three separate realities, right? And so on the one hand, you have the very stark distinction, very clear distinction between self and the other with the skin sort of a set boundary. And then what goes with that, that, that prepares us to think about the, the human experience being structured between a very clear difference between the public and the private. But yeah, I think the, the analogy is that this fuzzier realm is the realm of the commons, right? It's not yeah. structured by somebody delineating it and saying these three acres are public space and, and it's constructed by legal fiat, as it were, right? But it's constructed simply by the way that people use it. And I think he gives the example of a tree, right? In a public space, 
there are rules. You know, we're used to there being rules, right? You don't do this, don't do that, don't walk on the grass, you know, keep it pristine. You know, there's still this deep regulation of the way that the space is being used, yeah. which don't operate in the commons in the way that he at least understands them, right? So, you know, there's a tree, you know, the widows in the village may come to the tree for firewood, right? The children mm-hmm. may come for twigs. The city council may use it for shade on a Sunday evening. It serves a variety of functions, right? It's nuts are reserved for the poor, And so everybody has a kind of autonomy in making use of it, and nobody owns it. So it's not private, it's not public, and it's not very heavily regulated in the sense. And so people relate to it simply by the accumulation of habit and tradition and use with a kind of relative freedom for everybody in the community to have their needs met by as a space that's just freely available, right? And to get to that, through skin and hair and to connect that with this sort of understanding of the body is certainly a very unique path, right? (laughs) Yeah. I just think it was, and also he was pointing out like hair is simultaneously in you and outside of you. Exactly. It troubles the, the clean distinction between what is me and what is not me. Yes. In the same way that his idea of the commons, I think, troubles the distinction between public and private. And it yeah. kind of got me thinking too, he also does mention fur as well, how that used to be a symbol. Kings would wear like lots of fur to make them look a certain right. way. But it's like this weird dichotomy between who they actually are and what they're attempting to look like. And then I also started thinking, I guess, modern people, we like to shave. We don't want hair. So a lot of people actually don't like having hair, right? Yes. We only want it to be inside, I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think now you're really following Illich's uh, paths, right? I mean, that's very interesting. I didn't even make that connection. But it, yeah, as you say it, I, I mean, I certainly have anecdotal evidence of that being the case in, you know, in terms of what we see as sort of cultural standards of beauty and attractiveness and products and services that are, that's an interesting connection. I was just thinking you could take it down all the way. Not that anything's wrong, but what we put on our skin and then the fur and the clothes And also, like, I guess, plastic surgery and, like, those kinds of things, too. And this is always a very interesting thing about Illich's approach to any of these questions. It's so idiosyncratic, but then it kind of opens up Mm. all sorts of possibilities and and creates connections that, you know, I don't don't know that I would have arrived at otherwise. I have it open in front of me, that essay. It might be worth, I'll just read this little quick part Mm. about it. Towards the end, the concept of the commons is not that of a resource, A commons comes from a totally different way of being in the world where it is not production which counts, but bodily physical use according to rules that are established by custom. And I think there there are a lot of themes that pop up in Illich's work during this time, you know, just in that short paragraph, the description of what he's trying to get at with the idea of the commons. And then I guess before that, a commons is a space which is established by custom. It cannot be regulated by law. The law would never be able to give sufficient details to regulate a commons. Yeah. That line stuck out to me as well. Recently, it was a reading group that I was leading of Measure to Measure of All Things by you know Shakespeare's play. And, and part of what struck me in that, uh, I won't, how can I avoid giving a whole summary of the play? Basically, it has this idea of following the letter of the law fastidiously, right? Mm. And so it led to a conversation about how we relate to rules and and the desire to make everything sort of rule-based or to function. Yep. Uh, and, and 
there was somebody who sort of arguing, well, you know, you, the problem isn't rules. You need enough of them, right? And I think the idea was almost that you could regulate human behavior. You can make bureaucracies function. You just need to keep adding rules to cover all of the exceptions that come out, right? Because the initial objection is that if you apply the rule in certain cases, it becomes unjust, sort of obviously unjust. In the case of measure for measure, right, there's this totally disproportionate punishment for a crime, but it follows the letter of the law. And mm-hmm. so can we, one person in the group saying, well, you just needed an exception for that. As if then, if you just generated enough exceptions, you would arrive at a, a legal code that covers all possible human circumstances, right? That eliminates human judgment. And this was what was really interesting to me because the advantage of bureaucracy, of course, is that you eliminate the need for human judgment. You automate, and before you even introduce an algorithm, right? A bureaucracy sort of automates human decision-making. And so you don't have to make a decision. And of course, there's this kind of classic 20th century image of the bureaucrat. You know, you go into the DMV, you just want a simple thing done, but no, it can't because rule X, Y, and Z on the statute book. I I was talking with uh, another friend, uh, Varun, and he was sharing with me, I think it was from a movie, but it was just talking about like an immigrant coming to New York of all places and trying to order a coffee. They want a coffee, but it's like you have to say which one like Americano, but then how much <laughs> ice and sugar, whatever, all these different things. They don't know. They get overwhelmed by all the different, not rules. The decision tree, yeah. Right. And that's like, I don't even know what I want. I just need to get out of here. And then they just leave, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a person who doesn't know the language, the, the procedural structures. It, it's completely inhospitable, right? It, you can't make it serve your end unless you've mastered the system, as it were. But this line by Illich here in this particular essay, right, cannot be regulated by law. The law would never be able to give sufficient details to regulate a commons, which is to say that all of the, the human relationships that create the commons, you wouldn't be able to articulate all of those in a code, uh, a code of law, not a computer code. Because I think that the dream or whatever, in some cases, is to be able to do that, right, to make human society perfectly legible and thus controllable and predictable, right? Right, and Ella just arguing that's exactly what we shouldn't do. <laughs> right, I mean, I think that you can't do it, and so the attempt to do it becomes destructive, but certainly, I think, normatively, you shouldn't do it, right? Yeah. yeah, that's the whole thing around algorithms and recommendation systems, like these things that supposedly know us better than ourselves, or we have these AIs that are going to code better than us, but people have been talking about this for a while, like uh, Michael Polanyi about tacit knowledge, mm-hmm. right? There are things that we know that we can't say. We'll never be able to express in speech to someone else or to a computer. Right. That's that's why communication is so hard because otherwise right. we could literally transfer information to each other through like the matrix, but like that's not how anything works. Right. And, and how you is this forced to bring it all the way back to the beginning? something like silence, right? How does that, mm. the meaningfulness of silence get captured in that way, right? Yeah. And that's just like art and beauty, that whole thing about like not everything that's good should be measured. Let's say programming as theory building says the exact thing. Why you shouldn't outsource your programmers is because what matters is the mental model that programmers create mm. for their program, not the code. The code mm. is just the artifact of yeah. the programmer. And once they leave, like everyone knows like, in a way, that team that is lacking the person that made it in the first place, they don't know what to do, right? They don't know how it works. You can't just read the code and understand this is how it works. 
That's interesting. Yeah. So that's why I call it archaeology, right? It's like you're literally digging yeah. remnants of what we call dead code because the person that made it that understands how it works isn't there anymore. And then you're trying to rebuild yeah. this like theory of what's really going on. And then you might come up with a new theory that sort of works, but that doesn't match the same thing. And a dead code still works. It still runs. It'll still produce correct output. Yeah. But because our requirements change and you have to add new features, you're going to eventually introduce a bug or yeah. it won't work the same way. And so I think it's interesting tying all this to crypto where we're trying to program money. We're going to try to program legal stuff so that we don't need lawyers or middleman. And I think generally, maybe that's a good thing, right? You don't have to charge for those things. You can automate things that seem like you don't need people. But I think that if you take that to the extreme, like what if we just place make everything in program? I think we're going to have the same problem. If crypto will be a convivial tool, it would have to be one where people are still in it, right? Right. You're better versed in this than I am. And so I always kind of hesitate to speak into this space. But I certainly have seen expressed right, these sort of liberatory, uh, emancipatory visions for what it could be. And you know, some pin their hopes on this as a way of sort of being able to generate a new society that doesn't depend upon certain existing structures, but then also certainly been made aware of very different ways of, of seeing that where the inequalities get, I think, as we talked about earlier, sort of just replicated. And so, yeah, I, I can't say I'm doing much more than, than observing at this point to see how that plays out. Yeah, I'd be happy to hear more of your thoughts as time goes on. I'm happy to share more. <laughs> I think it's easy to conflate that with like this thing about trustlessness within crypto and then whether that trustlessness it just means less trust. So this guy, Vitalik, he's the creator of Ethereum. I like what he has to say in a blog post. He says that, to me, the goal of crypto was never to remove the need for all trust. Um, all you know, is emphasized. Mm. Rather, the goal of crypto is to give people access to building blocks that give people more choice in whom to trust. And then furthermore, allow people to build more constrained forms of trust. So I think that's a more nuanced take. It doesn't mean yeah. we replace all people with machines. But that maybe they didn't have a choice, um, and maybe this gives them more options. And this is still about trusting people. So I, I think that's a better view of what this should be about, rather than like, oh, let's get rid of all the middlemen. Right to do without trust to create a system. And I honestly do need to take this more seriously than I have, and, and kind of become better informed in this area. Yeah, it's a weird topic to end on, but I guess it's hard because there's so much noise in all of it you don't yes. even know where to begin somebody starting to, to try to make their way through it has a lot of work to kind of figure out where who do i need to listen to who do i trust in these questions no pun intended. it's funny though they're talking about like removing trust it's like what about within this space yeah i think that's all i had good to know that a, a, an unstructured conversation can carry on productively for a good while yeah enjoy it awesome appreciate chatting with you as always likewise henry